Our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalms 78, 1 through 8. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation that the the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might, and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is the word of the Lord. Sasan, Mike, welcome. Welcome to the Painted Door. Uh, my name is Mark, if you're new, one of the pastors here uh, at the church. Something happened uh, last night in Chicago, as I'm sure many of you are aware. Something that had historians' heads spinning and old-timers weeping and the bros of Wrigleyville whooping on Clark Street till all hours of the night. And... <laughs> Uh, that's all that will be said regarding that, uh, because as a Sox fan this morning, I am needing some comfort and consolation. Lo, we turn to the Psalms. Uh, our our church has begun a what will be a nine month period of focus on the Psalms. We began it a few weeks ago. I'm hoping that this time for us can be a time of spiritual formation in our congregation. That's what the Psalms invite us into. They invite us into a communion and friendship with God, not so much by taking us by the hand and leading us into that communion and friendship with God, but rather by providing a grammar for our existing friendship with God. The Psalms meet us where we are. So no matter if you are in hopefulness or if you are despairing, no matter if you are strong or weak, bold or timid, if you are energized or exhausted, the Psalms provide language for you to commune with God from there. There is no requirement that you move or shift where you are to begin participating and enjoying friendship with God. That's what friendship is. Friendship communes according to where your heart and mind presently are. The Psalms provide a grammar and language for us to do that. And this was the way that the Lord Jesus lived his human life. He lived his human life in this kind of ongoing communion, fellowship, friendship with God. So Jesus lived into every corner, every edge of human existence. He lived into all the frailty and beauty of what it is to be human. And in every respect, at every point, every turn along that journey, he was in communion with his Father as he went. So then the Psalms for us are a window into that friendship between the Son and the Father. There are a glimpse into the praying life of Jesus, how it was that Jesus communed with his Father 
in those different places along the human story. At every edge of human experience, we get to peek over the shoulder of Jesus, as it were, and peer into his communion with the Father. And, by extension, we get to witness the sort of communion and friendship that we are invited into. Another way of saying that is that the Psalms tell the internal soul story of Jesus, and they invite us to participate in that soul story with Jesus. They give us a picture of the anatomy of the perfect human soul, the anatomy of the soul of Christ, and they welcome us to be partakers of that full human soul, of that full humanity, to drink deeply of that same kind of friendship between God and man, to know that same kind of communion that Jesus knew with his Father. The Psalms tell the story of Jesus, and they invite us into that story. And the Psalm that we're looking at today, Psalm 78, tells the aspect of Jesus' story that comes before his lifetime. Psalm 78 recounts for us Jesus' heritage. It tells us of his ancestors, tells us of the background, the spiritual journey that led up to his entrance into the world. And this is important because much of the scripture, of course, deals with the ancestors of Jesus. The entirety of the Old Testament, in fact, deals with the ancestors of Jesus, the heritage of Jesus. But often when we look at that heritage, when we study that background, we do so so that we might highlight the contrast between Jesus' heritage and Jesus. And we make the theological connection, see how God can take even such a family as Abraham's, even a family with that much dysfunction, and bring out of it a real and glorious and beautiful salvation. See how God brings beauty even out of brokenness. And of course, this is wholly appropriate to do. This is a right and good theological conclusion to make. But there's quite a bit more available to us than just that in looking at the heritage and ancestors of Jesus. Because beyond just being a contrast, the heritage the ancestors, the background that led to the birth of Jesus actually provide for us a window into Jesus. See, where you came from really matters. The identity and cultural history and memory that you were raised in shapes you profoundly. And the ancestors, the heritage of Jesus, shaped him profoundly. Isn't it remarkable that when God set out to break into human history, he did not do so by just popping up out of nowhere as a man with no belly button, but instead he was born of a woman, Mary, a woman who had a mother and grandmother before her, generations before her, God, when he set out to break into human history, actually spent thousands of years, generations even, developing the root system from which 
the life of his son would spring up. God began planting the seed of Christ at the very beginning of human history, all the way back in the Genesis story. If you remember in Genesis 3 when God promises that a Messiah, that Yeshua, will come from the seed of woman. And God then is faithful throughout the Old Testament to nurture and water that seed all the way through the line of Abraham to bring about the birth of his son. Such that when Jesus comes into human history, he does not do so disconnected from a lineage, disconnected from a heritage, disconnected from the real human story. All of the dysfunction and beauty and frailty that we find in Israelite history gives birth to the life of Jesus. All of that dysfunction and frailty and beauty is in his mind, in his heart, it's in his blood. He's raised in it. He's shaped by it. So who Jesus is as a person has a lot to do with Israelite history. And the psalmist here in Psalm 78 is one of the primary reasons for that. That's, in fact, the project of Psalm 78. It is a charge to the people of Israel to retain their cultural memory and identity as a people by instilling it in their children. The parents of Jewish children read Psalm 78 or had it read to them or told to them and responded to it by teaching their children the stories and lessons of Israelite history. Listen to how Psalm 78 begins. We read it just a moment ago. It says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us, that we will not hide them from our children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. You can hear what the psalmist is doing here. He is charging the parents in Israel, even himself, to instruct the children in the stories of Israelite history so that they might learn the lessons of history, so that they might be shaped by this cultural memory, by the reminders both of Israel's folly perpetual turning from God, but also be reminded of God's perpetual faithfulness, his commitment to this foolish people, that he continued to pursue them. And so Psalm 78 then introduces this sort of cycle in the relationship between Israel and God, wherein Israel is rescued by God out of some calamity and then forgets 
begins to lose heart, begins to lose trust in God, begins to wander back into some new calamity and need rescuing again. And Psalm 78 recounts the recurring cycle of this over the course of Israelite history. It recounts it for the sake of the children so that they would see and know God's faithfulness to them even amidst their own rebellion or when they are running from him as fast and hard as they possibly can. It's as though each generation in Israelite history sought to uproot itself from all of the past story of God's deliverance and rescue. It's as though God had to sort of retell the story in each generation of his faithfulness to recapture the hearts of the people since they had forgotten the stories of their parents and grandparents. Psalm 78 seeks to correct this cycle, seeks to break this cycle, seeks to remind people, remind the children of the stories of their father and the faithfulness of God. And so as we get into the psalm then, it speaks of these historic, miraculous rescues, salvations of God in and among the Israelite people. It recounts the miraculous Exodus story out of slavery in Egypt when God first stretched out his arm and showed himself mighty and faithful and powerful and trustworthy to his people and drew them out of slavery in Egypt, split the Red Sea that they would cross on dry land, led them by day through a cloud and by night through a pillar of fire, separated a rock in the wilderness so that streams of water would flow and the people could drink. All of these stories of God's faithfulness, of his provision, of his trustworthiness. Yet, The psalm also recounts, they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Many of you know the story that, yes, in fact, God can spread a table in the wilderness. You know that story both from Israelite history, but also you can testify to that reality in your own life. Psalm 78 testifies to it that God rained bread and meat from heaven, that he spread a table to satisfy the craving for food of his Israelite children in the wilderness. He met them with provision. He cared for them even in the middle of their continual rebellion, rejection of him, turning from him, he showed fatherly kindness to them. Toward the end of Psalm 78, we read this, Yet he, that's God, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. These beautifully poetic words capture the story of Israel, but more than that, beyond that, they capture the story of Jesus. They capture the story that Jesus was 
born into. They capture the story that provided his root system, the story from which he sprang up. And in so doing, by extension, these words capture the story of us all. The story of our root system and where our life springs up from. As the theologian David Ferguson says it, the world was created so that Christ might be born. In other words, the ground on which we stand, the dust of this earth, the context of life here in this world is given, has been given, so that human life might flourish. This world is ours so that humanity might be created, so that personhood might be shared, so that some other being, other than the Father, Son, and Spirit, might share in the being and life of that triune God, of our triune God. This is the world where that great, generous gift of life plays out. And this is the world that sustains and pours into and nurtures that gift of life, seen most perfectly in the humanity of Jesus. The humanity of Jesus is sustained here in this place. This dusty world allows him to grow up into full Humanity. Humanity was meant to be rooted here. It was meant to be rooted in this place, on this earth, in this dust, in this story. And no matter where you come from then, that is true for you. No matter where you start, you are rooted in a story. You're rooted in the story of this world. You're rooted to this ground. You're born of this dust. This world is sustaining you. This is why you're alive, because you're connected to the story of this earth. And the story that you're in, the story that you're rooted in, the particulars of your life story, you didn't choose. You didn't choose which parents you would be born to. You didn't choose what your hometown would be. You didn't choose the sort of genetic material that would determine so much of your personality. You didn't determine the traumas that would happen to you and that you would carry with you. You didn't determine what baseball team you would cheer for. (laughs) Your team picked you. The point is, we are not living in a story of our making. We are living in a story that is making us. The roots that God has provided are creating us. The story that is happening around us are making us who we are, are growing us up into humanity. Just as was the case in the life of Christ That's what Psalm 78 is about. It's about the 
God-ordained story that made Jesus. The God-ordained heritage and lineage and ancestry that produced the person, the humanity of Jesus. Psalm 78 points us to that rootedness of Jesus, that true humanity of Jesus, that he was born out of the dust, that he came from somewhere. And this psalm is about those roots. It's about the life and memory and identity that God shaped in order to give birth to his son. All of this is God-ordained, of course, God ultimately is responsible for this story. God ultimately gives birth to his son in the world, but he does so through history. God likes history. He likes working through actual dusty events, and that's how he does work. He is not a zapping sort of God. He's a storytelling sort of God. And Jesus is rooted in a story. His life comes out of a story. This, of course, is because God knows something about humanity. He knows something about our humanity that we often forget, which is that we are as wind that passes and comes not again. In other words, our humanity is not self-sustaining. We are not islands that can live disconnected in the sea of our own self-determination. We can't invent ourselves. We can't support and nurture the ecosystem of our own lives. We have to be connected to a root system. We have to be rooted in order to live. We have to have relationship in order to have being. We can't be unto ourselves. We can't support our own weight. Yet, just like the Israelites, so much of our lives is spent scheming for how to uproot ourselves. So much of our thought and emotional energy is given to making plans for how we can disconnect ourselves from our story, from how we can shed our background, leave behind our roots. Generally speaking, this is why it is so common for teenagers to mistreat their parents. This is why so often young people violently swing to the other end of the spectrum when it comes to political ideology from the way that they were raised. They want to distance themselves from the way that they came up. They want nothing to do with it. They want to break rank. This is why retirement homes are so often left unvisited. This is why history is so often forgotten. Humanity is ever trying to break from her roots, 
tell a new story. More specifically, every one of us is doing this in ways particular to our lives. Every one of us has some aspect of our story that we are running from. Some aspect of our story that we don't want to face. We don't want to look in the eye. For some of you, it it might be a childhood trauma that you would rather not address. Something that you have simply suppressed. Something that you are trying to move on from rather than process. For others, it might be a friendship where there was some betrayal or hurt, a friendship that went south and you've simply withdrawn from that. For others, maybe it's your marriage. Just got so hard and painful that you've given up on the prospect of truly knowing your spouse or being known by your spouse, sort of living as roommates, not looking closely at the roots of this marriage, how it has formed and shaped you, how it really matters in your life. Some of you, maybe you failed in a career or a business venture, and you just can't bring yourself sort of pick through the rubble of that so that you could learn from it. Just want to move on. We're always trying to uproot ourselves in some way, always grasping for a new story, grasping for a better story, grasping for new friends or a new job or a new city or a new church or new parents. This is the longing that's in so many of us to be mentored. We all have this longing to be mentored, to be parented by someone or some group of people that would finally parent us in a way that our parents did not. That would finally provide for us the kind of parenting that our parents could not, that our parents failed to give. And so we grasp for these things, oftentimes, without ever having looked or slowed down enough to pay careful attention to the friends and the job and the city and the church and the parents that God actually gave to us. There's a reason that your story has played out the way it has played out. Your roots matter. They've shaped you profoundly. But we'd rather just move on. Always busy trying to uproot ourselves in some way. I get put on the horns of this dilemma for myself every time that I spend an extended time back in my hometown of Seattle. Because The dilemma is, on the one hand, 
I've lived now here in Chicago for seven years. I have a life here that I love. I have a life here that is fulfilling in many ways. It would be much easier to simply sort of keep those Seattle roots at bay, to pay them lip service, sure, not shun them completely, but not go into them for all the depth that they are, not really look at them closely, not wade through the spider web of family relationships and past church experience and old friendships. It's much harder to go into all those things. But on the other hand, on the other side of the dilemma, to overlook those things or to ignore those things or even mildly distance myself from those things is to forfeit what are the deepest waters of my life. The most meaningful and shaping elements of my story, the things that have really mattered in making me who I am. See, the deepest things of our life the deep waters of our life are formed over time. The relationships that stretch back the furthest are those that offer the greatest depth. There's been time to burrow deep. There's really worthwhile things there, things that can't be known or discovered in the shallower waters of more recent root systems. There's nurturing down in those deep roots. It will help you to understand who you are and to understand who God is being for you, how it is that God is nurturing you. God is shaping you. He is the ultimate determiner of where those roots began, of where it is that your life sprang from. Those are the things that have shaped you in the most profound way. In one sense, you will never have a more important relationship than with your parents. Even if you never knew your parents, they have shaped you profoundly simply by the impartation of your genetic code. There are deep waters. Even if today there is no opportunity for a direct relationship with your parents, nevertheless, there are depths to be explored there. There's understanding about humanity that you can access there in working through that history and coming to see God's hand of love in it the more you look at it. Likewise, your family, your siblings, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins, your oldest friends, your childhood friends, people that have known you and shaped you for many, many years, to ignore those roots is to ignore the real you. It's to ignore where you came from. It's to ignore your source and it's to reject the life that you have been given. It's to reject the life that God actually gave you, that he is using to shape you, has used 
to shape you, to create you, to ignore all of those roots. Dangerous as they seem, often it just seems so much easier to ignore them, but to ignore them is to decreate yourself in one sense. To ignore the story of your creation. The truth is, contrary to popular opinion, that you cannot reinvent yourself. You are rooted in a story. You will carry with you all of the aspects of that story in some capacity over the course of your life and your eternal life. You cannot escape it. God is shaping you, creating you, and he knows what he's doing. The great uh, environmentalist and wilderness preservation advocate John Muir once said famously, I love this quote, he said, I never saw a discontented tree. They gripped the ground as though they liked it. And though fast-rooted, they travel about as far as we do. We can learn a lot from trees, actually. (laughs) Because the truth is that we have as much choice in picking our roots or picking where we are rooted as trees do. The only difference is that we can pretend otherwise. We have the capacity to sort of invent a fiction, to live in an imagined story. But the real story of you, the real story of us, will always be there lurking under feet on the ground that you have tread, among the people that have hurt you, among the people that have known you, among the people that you have hurt, among the people that you have known. The real business of discovering the humanity that God is giving you is found in the exploration of the deepest points of the roots that he has determined your life to spring from. We are grounded creatures. This earth, this dust, this story, it's making us. It's creating us. Jesus, for all of the dysfunction of his heritage, all of the folly of the story of the Israelites, he didn't run from his roots. He allowed his roots to provide for him his identity. He lived in that identity even when that identity became quite costly. He spent his life there. He also went through death in that identity. You'll remember the inscription on the cross that it read, King of the Jews. Jesus, to the end, remains rooted in the story that God told of him. And rootedness is costly. It's very costly. That's why we try to uproot ourselves. That's why we run from it. Because rootedness prevents us from writing our own story. And it prevents us from writing death out of our story. Rootedness means living in the story that God is writing, 
And that is a story of happiness and sorrow. It's a story of comfort and pain. It's a story of life and death. But what a tragic thing when we spend so much of our time, so much of our effort is given to scheming for how to break free of that story that God is writing for us, for how to disconnect ourselves from the rootedness that he has given to us. When it came to the life of Jesus, as it turned out, all of that dysfunction of the history of Israel, all of that folly, all of that sorrow, all of that pain, all the dead things simply wound up being the roots that sprang up in resurrection. All of the broken, most twisted, most hurtful things that defined the lineage and heritage of Jesus and shaped and colored his life here gave birth to life eternal. So how tragic is it for us then to give ourselves to disconnecting us from the roots that will spring to life eternal for us too. It's our story. It's these roots that God is giving to us so that he might sustain us forever. He is creating us into full being, the fullness of humanity, a sharing and participation in his divine life so that we might live in that life forever. And he is shaping us and creating us for this eternal life, for this resurrection in a story, in our story, in your story, in my story. Your roots matter. Don't turn your face from them. Hear this. Every need for life is being given to you. You never have any reason to go grasping after some other story, some other root system than your own. You can pay close attention and you will discover that even there, in the brokenness and heartache, God is being kind to you. You will finally discover that we are all rooted in the perfect story of God's faithful love. And we can live there. Let's pray. Father, many of us, when we look back, perhaps all of us, when we look back at the story of our lives, have all manner of painful things to see and address and work through and process. And this is a harrowing thing. It's a scary thing. For many, even the present moment that we find ourselves in, the circumstances of life today is hard enough to face. The relationships that you have us in are confused and twisted and tricky. 
We need your spirit. We need the spirit of Christ and the courage to face these things. To look them in the eye and even look through them and see somehow your kindness at work over it. Give us eyes of faith to see this for ourselves, to see it for one another. Help us to point these things out to one another, to have the patience to work through these things with one another, go to the hard, scary places of our lives, even when no immediate resolution seems available. Grow us up in the life of your son into his generous, charitable, kind mercy for ourselves and for each other. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.